Hi, and welcome to Listen Up Handholes, the only MCU podcast that connects the lovers, the dreamers, and you. I'm Joshua Unruh, puppetry professor from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert and Muppet superfan Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And together we're working our way through the good, the even better, and the sadly temporary of the Muppet Cinematic Universe. So listen up, handholes. We're going to talk about The Muppet Movie. Gotta say, I'm pretty excited. After 72 episodes of this podcast analyzing the narrative structure of each individual sketch on the original Variety Show, it's pretty great to sit down with a longer story that has, you know, narrative. But before we get into it, Joshua, hit me with some felt-covered facts. Well, listen, I'm going to push back a little bit as my first felt-covered facts and say that every joke is a story, which means every (laughs) sketch is a story and does have some internal narrative, albeit somewhat chaotic and extremely short. Fair enough. But, but our actual felt-covered facts for the Muppet movie are pretty legitimately amazing, I think. (laughs) For instance... This marked the first time in a movie that puppet characters could be seen from head to toe. Wow. I know. Very first time. I mean, we'd seen it some. You know, we'd seen it a couple of times in the sketches on the show that we've seen feet. Mm -hmm. Feet exist. But this is the first time we've actually seen them standing, moving a little bit. It's very impressive. Although, to be honest, it really pales in comparison to the next feat of, you know having feet (laughs) because this is also the first time that we see Muppets ride bikes. Whoa. And this is actually a trick that Henson was coy about for years afterward. In fact, I'm not even sure if Jim Henson himself ever came clean on how they managed this magic trick, but eventually the word got out. So when Kermit is riding his bike, you are watching a Muppet controlled by marionette strings, manipulated by a puppeteer on a platform, suspended over the set on a freaking crane. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, with strings that long and the height involved, Jim himself couldn't do it and his son Brian took the honors. Oh, it's like a legacy thing. Exactly. It's pretty cool. That father and son moment is very cool. And I can just I can just imagine, you know, as a son and a father myself, I can I can just imagine the moment that Brian was like, Dad, I got it. It's pretty great. (laughs) Heartwarming. And whenever they needed a close up on the bike, they just switched over to the regular hand puppet. So through the magic of editing, it's seamless enough that it blew the minds of moviegoers in 1979. And if we're being entirely honest, it's a practical effect that still looks pretty incredible in 2020. Oh, it holds up, yeah. And if you think that getting a felt frog to ride a bike by being suspended a hundred feet in the air was impressive, (laughs) then prepare to be amazed at how they filmed Kermit sitting on a log floating in actual water. Really? Jim Henson spent several days in a (laughs) 50-gallon drum submerged under that water in order to operate Kermit for the opening banjo scene. (laughs) Why, 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 Why would you do that? Well, now, look, I'm not saying he spent the night there. Like, I'm not I'm not saying he was on some sort of, you know, like vision quest in the drum where he was trying to become one with the puppet. 
but he did spend entire shooting days, which can be incredibly long, you know, stuck there sure, running yeah. a puppet who was running a banjo, who was <laughs> singing a song. And that actually brings me to a point about the Rainbow Connection itself. Hmm. Just last year, there was a new interview in Vanity Fair with Paul Williams, who is the writer of The Rainbow Connection. Mm -hmm. And he said that when the song was first recorded in the studio, Jim Henson began the process by going into the booth by himself and singing by himself, but in Kermit's voice. Right. Now, everyone in the process really had the feeling that something was missing until someone, unfortunately, Williams can't recall who, but someone suggested that Kermit himself should give it a go. Oh, like the puppet? Yes. Oh. So Henson took the puppet itself. He took Kermit into the booth with him and let Kermit perform the song. Oh. And according to Williams, Kermit sang it brilliantly, and I have to agree. It, yeah, it's real good. And for our last felt covered fact, and I mean, that Rainbow Connection one touches my heart, yeah. honestly, but we, we put this one at the end because it is so bonkers to me just <laughs> as a concept that this is the way we would go about something. Mm -hmm. But while most filmmakers would have accomplished the scene where Animal gets huge by using a regular puppet on a set of miniatures, right. Jim motherfucking Henson did not come to play. <laughs> He built a 60-foot-tall animal head instead. <laughs> now, apparently, and again, this shocks me, but apparently Jim was of the mind that sometimes the best way to do a practical effect is to not do an effect at all. Uh, I, <laughs> apparently. Well, that's about all the felt-covered facts I have for this particular movie. Lonnie, tell us a little bit about the production history. Ah, sure thing. Uh, Muppet Movie was released June 22nd of 1979. It was written by Jerry Jewell and Jack Burns, two of the regular writers from The Muppet Show, and was directed by James Frawley, who reportedly did not enjoy the project. But really, how could anyone hate working with The Muppets all day? This represented the only time Henson brought in someone from outside The Muppet family to direct a movie. The movie was a box office success, earning almost $66 million in 1979, back when that was a success. And it was also a critical... Whoa, yeah. how times have changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like a mediocre opening weekend now. Yeah, $66 million is like the crappy marketing budget. Yeah. <laughs> and it was also a critical success. Uh, scores 88% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, not bad. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a little surprised it's lower than 90%, but, yeah. you know, it's Rotten Tomatoes. Still a solid B+. True. Yeah. Very true. So, you know how I feel about prologues. This movie has a prologue, and it does nothing to forward the story. But as you've heard me say about the Muppets many, many times, the chaos is the point, and without it, we're not the Muppets, just a bunch of weird animals. So we have this prologue where we find out that we're in a private screening of the movie we're about to watch, and of course things are a chaotic mess, and we don't need this for any narrative reason whatsoever. But the Muppets need it, so they can build a frame that they can then peek around the edges of. Put another way, if you acknowledge the moviness here, you can do gags like the screenplay business with the band, and also, most importantly, it gives you an equivalent to the backstage bits from the show, all the how the sausages made comedy from the original show. Right, I think that's why this prologue, while technically not really doing anything for the narrative, it does sort of do something for the Muppet meta-narrative, right? Like, yeah. it stitches this experience back to the Muppet show, which at this time, much to everyone in 2020 surprise, would have been the only Muppet touchstone, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were little bits on, like, um, late-night shows and, and talk shows and things, but the Muppet show was when the, when the property got big. And, you know, moving into the movie space, 
doing something even kind of metafictional to tie it to that. It, it makes sense to me. So not technically a narrative reason, but we should probably have a larger conversation about prologues as meta narrative sometime. Oh, yeah. Interesting. OK, so the actual plot begins uh, with Kermit in the swamp. And the first thing he does is sings Rainbow Connection, famous, famous song. And before I get into what the song is doing for us here is I, I just have to ask this song begins, why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? But except for Somewhere Over the Rainbow, seriously, what other songs? I've Googled and looked and I, all I find are covers of The Wizard of Oz and this song. If, if someone out there has like one or two would be fine, but I'm really looking for like so many, like 10. <laughs> someone give right. me a 10 list, a list of 10. Where I ask you are the overwhelming numbers yeah. of multi-chromatic <laughs> songs that Kermit seems to be a little annoyed by. Yeah. Where are they, friends? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It seems like a manufactured problem. This frog is making mountains out of that molehill. Exactly right. <laughs> that, that said, I actually love this song here, um, specifically because... Well, okay, to be honest, it's sort of an emotional prologue, because I think what it's about is about puppetry and choosing to believe when you know things aren't real. It says, rainbows are visions, but only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. Later on, it talks about wishing on stars. Somebody thought of that, and somebody believed it. And then it talks about keeping us stargazing. To me, the song is saying that investing your belief in something, even if you know it's fake, is worthwhile. For a movie that's going to focus on the dreams of a charismatic sock, this is kind of an important message to get your audience to buy into. It's true. It's true. And, and again, to justify that kind of metafictional prologue in the theater, mm -hmm. like this is a lot more emotional, but it's still speaking towards that like multi-layered reality that the Muppet show is working on. Always. Yeah. You know, but, but it shifts us from the kind of like wild chaos comedy bit and lets us know that there's also going to be like an actual impactful emotional bit as well. It's pretty masterful storytelling, even if it is still kind of doing the metafictional lifting. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 also a symptom of just being a musical. You always need to set your tone with the songs. And even if <laughs> sometimes they don't necessarily advance the story, but that's that's, that's the medium talking there. Well, sure. And the first song is sometimes often, hey, heads up. This is a musical. Right. You know, just <laughs> in when case it happens you later, the don't be shocked. That's right. <laughs> it's like, oh, listen, I was down for a bunch of crazy puppets, but if they're going to sing at me, I am out. Exactly. What's next? Subtitles? Unbelievable. <laughs> There's a couple other songs that kind of touch on this theme of invested belief and imagination. Uh, Can You Picture That is very much like an ode to imagination. And I hope to go back there someday is is Gonzo reframing the dark moment of the of the movie. It's them talking about how, you know, it's about Gonzo talking about how he wants to get back to that place where he believed, basically. I'll say one more thing on the topic of uh, like that kind of bigger metafictional Muppet storytelling, because when you're this focused on imagination, it is really easy. Now, I don't want to be too spoilery because it is going to be quite a while before we get to this seminal animated work. Mm -hmm. But this much emphasis on imagination is really going to come up a lot and basically be the entire point of the Muppet Babies cartoon series. Absolutely. When, we, when the show gets there, we'll be have a lot to say about imagination. But I want to point out to the listeners. Listen, handholes. These themes show up at the beginning of all of it and just keep on rolling through. It's really pretty impressive how cohesive the underlying themes of the Muppets can be. Absolutely. Uh, Henson is actually a great argument for auteur theory, I think. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, in the year of our Lord 2020, it's usually an argument against auteur theory, right, I right, feel. Right. But yeah, this is one of the one of the wins. This is one of the pros. Yep. A example of, of, of applied auteur theory, perhaps. Not necessarily. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to Gonzo. So as you all know from previous episodes, I've always thought it was kind of interesting that Gonzo is considered the weirdo in this collection of monsters and talking furniture and fruit that dances and whatnot. <laughs> the movie continues treating him that way by involving him in a car crash that makes no kind of you know, like physics sense and by having him <laughs> plan to go to Bombay, India to become a movie star. Of course, the joke's on Henson here because he actually said later on that he had no idea that Bollywood movies were a thing and Bombay, now called Mumbai, actually produces more movies and sells more tickets than Hollywood. And let's be honest, I mean, those movies are bonkers. Now, I recognize there's probably like some clear cultural difference between them, but nevertheless, when I watch Bollywood movies, I am just buckled in for whatever bananas business is about to happen, and I can't think of anything more appropriate for Gonzo than that feeling. Totally, totally. And I I kind of think that if, you know, Henson had known about it, he might have gotten into Bollywood. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they're so farcical so often, even when they're kind of being serious, like they're just a lot of like uh, uh, throwbacks to to the sort of golden age of Hollywood musical and dance numbers mm. that Bollywood is just still doing, which feels very Muppet show a mm -hmm. lot of the time. I, man, I am now very interested in the alternate universe where Jim Henson <laughs> also did Bollywood Muppets. <laughs> I am here for it. Or would it just look like the Muppets? I don't you know. know. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fair question. <laughs> but to finish my point about Gonzo, I think the reason he gets to be the weirdo in this group is that he's in this weird border area between the monster Muppets and the animal Muppets. He has features of both. So these characters yeah. are used to dealing with frogs and pigs and even like Sweetums and Uncle Deadly and, and the, the monstery ones. <laughs> But Gonzo throws them for a loop because he doesn't fit in a category. It's true. It's true. Even his sort of, uh, um, I, I don't know, uh, em empathic or symbiotic relationship with the chickens. You're like, <laughs> so is he a rooster? Or, <laughs> And I'm uncomfortable with the affirmative answer to that question, I think. But also, you know. Well, and it's, um, you know, to throw forward, the uh, the Muppet Family Christmas uh, makes it explicit. Like a, a turkey tells him, you're not even a bird. And he says, nobody's perfect. So he's definitely not a bird of any kind. So he's like aspirationally avian? I think this so. This is just so many layers to Gonzo and really does go to explain why even in this motley crew of madness, he's still the weirdo. It's You make a fine point. Thank you. I think actually there might be space for sort of like being non-binary in a gender sense. He's like uh -huh. non-taxonomical. He's an NT. Right. <laughs> That's, yeah, wow. <laughs> Boom, mind explosions right. right now. Galaxy brain stuff with non-taxonomical. I'm here for it. And of course, un undercutting my theory slightly, you have Animal, who also seems like a mixture of monster and, well, animal. But everyone's afraid of him, so that's kind of interesting too. No, nah, that checks out though. I mean, he also fills that kind of liminal space that Gonzo does, but whereas Gonzo is just clearly a raw nerve of vulnerability right. walking around all the time, mm -hmm. Animal is a raw nerve of usually fun-filled rage. Right. I don't know. Unrestrained id, maybe, is the way to call it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's probably, that's the way to do it. Sometimes good news, sometimes bad news, always off the chain. Right. <laughs> all right. 
So let's talk central narrative conflict. Kermit has an active, specific, achievable goal, which is getting to Hollywood to become rich and famous and make millions of people happy, more importantly. Uh, which, sure, sure. Which Doc Hopper is blocking. So it's actually pretty disciplined. And I even think it hits all seven of the anchor scenes you heard me talk about on how story works. I think the screenwriters probably wanted to make sure that the plot was rock solid because they knew it was going to have to support a bunch of goofy gags and fourth wall bits. And you needed a solid structure to hold all that up. I think I can agree with that totally. I mean, I personally see that in most like of the Mel Brooks movies or mm. something like that, where um, either there is the plot is just like a suggestion of a plot because we're just going to do gags. And I feel like that's kind of blazing saddles where it's like, we don't know how to end it. Let's just blow it up. Right. And, uh, and other times the plot is so bog standard, simple, sort of more in the, uh, you know, men in tights vein that you, it's just there to make sure we can support the infinite weight of gags. We're going to throw on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah, it's interesting to see that, that kind of parallel, approach to really serious but simple structure because we're just going to heep crazy on it you know <laughs> makes sense has to something has to hold up all that crazy otherwise it falls down you get crazy right. all over your shoes <laughs> which you can do now because we got to see the muppets from the yeah. to head to toe <laughs> now we can see their feet whether they're covered in crazy so unfortunately we do have to address the misogyny you've heard me give versions of this rant lots of times before notably in episodes 2 Nine and 30 to 34 inclusive, but you're getting it again. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Because the movie takes it to a whole new level. Female representation has always been the Muppets Achilles heel. No, fuck that. It's a whole Achilles leg. That might possibly be related to the fact that the handful of female characters are written and even played by men. But what do I know? I'll tell you what I know. I hope that something better comes along. The song that uh, Kermit sings with Rolf is misogynist trash, and it leads directly to the damseling of our only prominent female character when Piggy is kidnapped. To be fair, she rescues Kermit and herself in the end of that scenario, and then she leaves to go do a commercial because she's her own goddamn person. But the movie wants us to think she's a monster for not being there at Kermit's beck and call. And then, and then, literally the next scene after she leaves to take her own path to stardom, she's hitchhiking and groveling to get back in Kermit's good graces. She's clearly been putting in the work on her own career, doing it, you know, one rung of the ladder at a time. But we can't let her be independent from the clearly superior plan by the man to just drive to Hollywood and hope. <sighs> I mean, there's a space, there's a space where I want, let's just drive there and hope to make sense in terms of this movie, mm -hmm. you know? But I don't think that it needed to do that at the expense of Piggy. Yeah, and the idea that specifically that we're also, you know, it's fine to have that as your plot, if you don't also acknowledge that, you know, this is how people actually get get to you know, be, rich and, be rich and famous and make millions of people happy, is they take a commercial, as Piggy does. Right. <laughs> Yeah, she's the pragmatic one. She's got the real deal. Yeah, she's doing the work. And maybe, and maybe, just maybe, this whole thing would work out a lot better for everybody, including us, the viewers, and the messages we're getting if we married Piggy's pragmatism with Kermit's hope. Yeah. Although perhaps not literally. We right. can let them make their own decisions. <laughs> but we marry those concepts together and watch them like double and treble yeah. the success of the Muppets. But sadly, it's 1979 and it wasn't yet to be. No, no, no. I think I'd be happier, though, if we didn't have the bit of, of Piggy doing the shoe leather approach to stardom. If we just had her hopes and dreams are it, and that's how you do it. That's like a cleaner message. Absolutely. 
Either you have to commit to that much cleaner message or you have to do the work of marrying the two ideas better. This whole thing of just like introducing it but not actually putting it to bed is, yeah, it's it's not great. It's yeah. on top of being, uh, you know, at least sexist. It's also probably a little undermining to the core narrative conflict. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it is. All right, so I think that that about wraps up the chat about the Muppet movie. It's such a wonderful piece to visit. It was so groundbreaking on so many levels at the time, both like practically in terms of effects and also moving this cultural juggernaut or what is in the process in 1979 mm. of becoming a cultural juggernaut from TV into movies. And then we'll go back to TV and bifurcate into more movies. <laughs> but this is really where that whole thing starts. So tell me, Lonnie, What's your favorite part of the Muppet movie? It's such a simple little bit. I mean, I love so much about this movie. I love uh, several of the songs are, are favorites of mine. But my favorite bit is just Beaker uh, mimicking Bunsen Honeydew saying, sadly temporary. Randy temporary. <laughs> <laughs> it gets me every time. It's a great bit. It's so, and that's the beauty of this kind of movie where you can just go gag, 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 is that, you know, maybe not all of them will work to the same level, but every now and then you'll get one that's just like, okay, <laughs> on paper, that was just okay, but in execution, yeah. fantastic. It is one of those. What's your favorite part, Joshua? Well, I'm going to kind of swing like to the opposite end, away from the comedy side of the spectrum to the schmaltzy mm. side of the spectrum, because I love that Rainbow Connection performance. And I mean, you have to remember my age here is that I've basically never lived in a world where Kermit the Frog wasn't singing right. Rainbow Connection. Mm -hmm. And it really affects me. Like it has a maybe it caught me when I was a kid, when my defenses were down and it just got in there and it's in there forever. But that's a huge emotional impact for me to, to when I revisit this movie and in my research for this episode of the show of our show finding out about the like actual physical tribulations that Henson <laughs> had to go through to to film that scene and the idea that the performance wasn't perfect until Kermit did it not Henson himself all that just That's adds to my enjoyment yeah yeah it's so good If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich, and she loves it when you tweet at her about Muppets. And I'm at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, handholes. This episode of Listen Up Handholds is brought to you by the Chipperish and Pulp Diction producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Listen Up Handholds is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our April producers. This message is for you. April Fools. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Production, our Patreon links are in the show notes. Other ways to show your support? Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or to try Harry Krishna. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up Handholes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Season 4, Episode 1, John Denver. Until then, one honeycomb for the bear, one dragonfly ripple for the frog. Don't get them mixed up. <laughs>